Nehemiah chapter 13. And if you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read uh, the word of the living God? This is Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now before this, Elishab, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was filled, was, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine, and the oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieves me bitterly. Therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shemaiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites Padiah and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. In those days I saw people in Judah trading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us, on this city? Yea, you, you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? And so it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not open, be opened until the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates, so that no burdens would be brought on the Sabbath day. 
Now the merchants and the settlers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. And then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or, your, for your, or yourselves. Did not Solomon the king of Israel sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God had made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him even to sin. Should we then hear of your doing of all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Jordiah, the son of Elishab, the priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenants of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. You may be seated, please. Thank you so very much. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you, Lord, that it's alive. We're not reading some historical account that has no meaning for us today. But we're reading a fresh word from God, served up by you today to penetrate our hearts and change us thereby. This is our expectation of your word this morning because this is your promise associated with it when it falls on hearing hearts. So Father, take these distractions that otherwise might be there and remove them from us. And help us to focus on your still small voice and, to, and to, to, to dismiss all other competitors. Thank you for us being able to gather together in your name. And we praise your glorious name from this time forth and forevermore. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we come to the end of our journey through DMI in chapter 13. The title of this message is Guard the Trust. Guard the Trust. And I want you to see the reversion, I want you to see the reforms, and I want you to see the renewal. First of all, the reversion. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had met the children of Israel with bread and water, had not met, <clears throat> and had hired Balaam against them to curse them. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, and you might want to go there with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, <clears throat> God told them that in their worship, this covenant people that God had set aside for Himself, He gave them instructions about their worship that they violated as soon as 
Nehemiah had gone back to Persia to be in service of King Artaxerxes. You remember that in the beginning of the story in Nehemiah, Nehemiah asked for God to give favor with King Artaxerxes to give him permission to go back to Jerusalem some 800 miles away and rebuild the wall that had been broken down because of Israel's apostasy and the judgment that God imposed on them because of it. God moved upon the heart of Artaxerxes and gave the favor that he asked for and he went back surely, just as surely as he asked God and went back to Jerusalem and in 52 days, in the course of 52 days, they rebuilt the wall. They began to go back to the Word of God. They began to uh, repent. They asked God to forgive them for the things they had done. They got the judgment upon them in the first place. Things were set back in order. Things were on the right track. After they got on the right track and they were set in order, Nehemiah did what he told the king he would do all along. He told the king when he left, I will return. He made good on his word. And so Nehemiah left went back to Persia to, king, to be in service of King Artaxerxes. And these are the events that transpired while he was gone. So while he was gone, they quickly turned back to ignoring God's word, just like they were doing in the first place. And this is the place where it started. In clear instruction from God's word, God told them in Deuteronomy... Chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, the following. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless... The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all the days of your life. Well, in direct disobedience to God's word, they find out, and Nehemiah finds out, that as they get to read the word in the book of Moses, in the hearing of the word, there were Ammonites and Moabites in the crowd. He said, they're not supposed to be led into your assembly. Who are these people and where do they come from? <clears throat> the Ammonite and the Moabites are descendants that can be traced back to Lot and his incestuous relationship between his two daughters. You recall in Genesis chapter 19 that Lot, after having escaped the judgment from Sodom and Gomorrah, and God had him move out with his family. Lot was a, a saved man, but he was a worldly man. He couldn't make up his mind which world he wanted to live for. He couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to live for God's kingdom or he wanted to live for this earth. And when you're called in the middle like that, you become worldly. And such was the testimony of Lot. His family was in disarray. will not go into all of that. But he narrowly escaped the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason that God got him out of there is because he was a Christian. But he narrowly escaped it. After they escape, his two daughters conspire, after he had gotten drunk, to have uh, relations with him. And from that sin comes the Ammonites 
and the Moabites. Now, when Israel came out of Egypt, the Ammonites were in a position to help them, to offer them aid in the desert because they were in the middle of coming out and going in. And just on the fringes of the promised land were these people. And it says there that because they gave the children of Israel no help, no bread, no water, did not help them. And from that time forth, ever since they were birthed, they were enemies of, of God. They were enemies of God's people. Moreover, in a very curious story in the Bible that comes about in Numbers chapters 22, 23, 24, and 25, ending in Numbers 25, the king of the Moabites hired a prophet named Balaam. And what he hired him for was, he said, I want you to come and I want you to stand above over the plain of where all the children of Israel were encamped during their wilderness wandering. I want you to stand on a, a plateau above the plain and I want you to go and curse them for me. Now, Balaam was riding a donkey. If you remember, this is a familiar story. Balaam's donkey. And God spoke through Balaam's donkey. He gave Balaam's donkey the ability to speak. And when they were going down to meet with the Moabite king to be paid to curse God's people, there was an angel that was put in the way in the path. And the donkey saw the angel, but Balaam didn't because Balaam was a false prophet. He couldn't see it. And that angel, the donkey stopped. I'm not going any further because there's an angel there and he's going to take me out. I'm not going any further. So this donkey that Balaam thought was stubborn was just scared to death. And finally, God spoke through the donkey to stop Balaam from going down that path. Well, he went down it anyway. And he went to go curse God's people. But when he got up on the plane, he found out that he couldn't do it. He could not bring himself to curse God's people. As a matter of fact, look in verse 2. He says, because they had not... This is Nehemiah 13... He's talking about the Ammonites and the Moabites. Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so it was that they heard the law and they separated from them all the mixed multitudes. So when he got up there on the plane, he said, um, I can't bring myself to do it. So he went to the north, he went to the south, he went to the east, and he went to the west. And there he was on this elevated plane above the children of Israel in the valley, and he could not bring himself to curse them. And you know why he couldn't bring himself to curse them? It's because Jesus Christ took the curse for you and me. And we cannot be lost once you're saved. The enemy has no say in that. The curse was taken by Jesus. The Bible said, Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. Jesus Christ became the curse that our sin merited, took the curse away from you and I, and set us free, and we can be cursed no more. Praise His name. And so He couldn't curse them. So, here's what He said. This is the story now. This is Numbers chapter 25. He said, okay, here's the deal. And He whispered in the Moabite king's ear, and He said, listen, here's the deal. I can't curse them. God won't let me. As a matter of fact, He got up there and blessed them. He said, but if you want to take them out, if you want to mess with them, if you want to ruin them, here's how you do it. Get some of your women to go over there to their border and let them seduce them and tease them. And what will happen is, is they'll give in probably to that 
And once they do, they'll start to marry them. And they'll start to mix in with them. And once you start doing that, here's what they'll do. They'll quit worshiping their God and they'll start worshiping yours. And so the Moabite king said, I'll do it. And so here's what he did. He took, he did just that. He had all of them go over there and had the women gather around the border of the Israelites and seduce them. You can imagine what all that involved. And then they sure enough began to have relations with them. And they began, and sure enough, in Numbers chapter 25, they began to bow to their gods. And they, you know what? To bow to another god means you can't bow to Jehovah because he is exclusively to be worshipped. And so they bowed down, and you know what happened? God struck them with a plague. 24,000 Israelites were killed in that plague. Just like that. He spoke to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to take all the leaders, and I want you to go and take everyone who was responsible for doing this and leading the people into this uh, uh, apostasy. I want you to take them, and I want you to publicly hang them in front of everybody. And so Moses did it. Well, when he did that, there was a guy in there, and he was the grandson of Levi. And he was standing there, and the last remnant of the apostasy was occurring at the tent of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of meeting. And there was a Moabite woman who was there being joined together with an Israelite man. He took a javelin and he ran that javelin through both of them, just like that, and stabbed both of them. His name was Eleazar. And when he did that, I mean Phineas, he was the grand, he was the son of Eleazar, and Eleazar is the son of Levi. And he did that. When he did that, the plague that had killed twenty four thousand stopped immediately. God commended him and said, he's a priest after my own heart. He'll be a priest over my people forever. It was a precursor. It was a picture of coming attractions of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He said, you will not defile worship of my God. And so what happened was, by intermeeting and intermingling with them, their worship was polluted and perverted. Now, Stay with me. So what happens is, then, on top of that, they drove that out and they responded to God's Word in verse 3. But look what happened now in, with Elisha, the priest, in verse 4. He had authority over the storehouses of the house of God, and he was allied with Tobiah. Do you recognize that name? Do you remember that name? Do you remember that there were three enemies that were coming against the work of rebuilding the wall? Do you remember the three names of the enemies? Does anybody? Sam Ballot? You say it? Spencer? Tobiah? Huh? Geshem. That's it. There were three enemies that tried to. Remember, we made the analogy. Do you remember what those three enemies represent? Now, we have three enemies we have the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Do you remember the three of those that those represent? Who represented what? Do you remember? Huh? The, Tobiah is the devil. That's right. Geshem is the world, right? Okay, and Sanballat is the flesh. And what do we find out here? We find out that the high priest, the chief kahuna, is in 
uh, cahoots. He's in partnership with Tobiah, and he represents none other than who? The devil. So the devil moves into the house of God, into the storerooms, and those storerooms were made to store grain and offerings and articles and tithes of grain and wine and oil. And that was used to take care of the Levites who were the priests and the singers who led in corporate worship and the gatekeepers. In other words, it was money. It was equivalent to money inside the house of God. And that storehouse was designed and built to keep that. And because... Eliashib took all of that and cleaned it out and let the devil live there. This is the state of things after Nehemiah left. You have to guard the trust. You cannot just meander around in your Christian life and not tend to it and not expect the enemy not to move in. You have got to tend to the things of God. You've got to be mindful. We've got to be diligent about our faith. We can't be apathetic about our faith. Because once we are, and once the leadership especially, lets their guard down, the enemy moves in. Gentlemen, you cannot be apathetic about the state of your home. You can't be apathetic about the people under your watch care. Because if you don't tend things, let me tell you this. Here's the deal. And we did this at our Sunday school class one time. But if, matter of fact, Pastor Dave, will you go sit there beside Elaine? You go sit there beside Elaine. All right. Okay, y'all stay right now. Can y'all let me sit down right here? Yo, can y'all get up? I need to sit down. Okay. Can y'all, I tell you what, let me sit where you're at, Al. No, no, stay here on the road now. Stay here. Yeah, stay here. But Al, can I sit where you are? Okay. All right, let me get up now. Hold on a second. All right, everybody get up. All right, everybody get up. And y'all, let me, let me sit down. Okay, stay on the row now. Stay on the row. And y'all, y'all just sit down. Al, stay right here. Just stay right here. Yeah, you can just stand here. Everybody else sit down. And Al will be standing up. You want to sit down? Everybody sit down. Okay, Ray and City, can y'all sit down? Stay right where you are. Y'all sit down. Al's going to stand up. Al, sit down right here, Elaine, will you? Al, just stand here right beside me, if you will. Okay. Are you there? All right, now y'all both sit down. Y'all, everybody comfortable? Al, you all right? I didn't think so. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Here's what here's what I'm here's the point I'm trying to make is that <clears throat> the world the world will fill your plate with everything you can imagine, <clears throat> with things that might be valid concerns and things that you might think need your attention. And when Jesus steps in and he decides to sit down in the middle of your life, it's gonna require adjustments. It means you know, Al had to get up. And they, everybody had to move around. I caused turmoil on that road just then. Y'all ready to kill me because you're thinking, couldn't you pick another row? And so <clears throat> here we are. And you, Chad left and Eric left because they were being polite. And then Al had to get up. He didn't know what to do. And everybody else didn't know what to do but sit down and everything. See, I rocked your world and I caused every one of you to make adjustments and you couldn't ignore me. And I'm going to tell you something right now. When Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, He's going to rock your world and cause you to make some adjustments. I'm going to tell you right now, He's either Lord or He's not. And when He's Lord and He moves in and you tend to things spiritually, you make sure. We have to be diligent about the Word of God and diligent about a Word that we get from God to obey it. We need to be diligent about the things of God. We need to be diligent about being involved in our church. We need to be diligent about our prayers. We need to be diligent about the attempts of the enemy to come into our home. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not legalistic. We're saved by grace through faith. But I can tell you this. 
sometimes through the television, you let people do something in your home you would never let somebody do in your home. Now you tell me the difference just because they're not there. You see, if you don't guard the trust... See, when he went back to see King Artaxerxes and he had set things in order and God had worked through his life, what happens? First of all, the Ammonites and the Moabites come in and they're able to worship. They come and mix in. And what happens is they start to intermarry. They start to get in relationships with one another. What happens then is their worship is prostituted. Their worship is compromised. And then one compromise leads to another that leads to another that leads to another. That pretty soon, the place that was resigned and set apart for the Levites, see the need of reform, this place that was set apart for the Levites, for the offering, in order to tend to them and give them a livelihood from the prescribed manner in which God said they would get it, would be through the offerings of the church, the house of God. The devil is now living there. Historically speaking, Historically speaking, this is the last chapter in the Old Testament. This is the last chapter in the Old Testament. This is where the Old Testament stops in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now the prophetic voice to this chapter is Malachi. That's the last chapter in the order of our Bibles. But historically, this is the last chapter of the Old Testament. And what are they doing? They're stealing from God. What are they doing? They're prostituting their worship, clearly disobeying His commands to exclude these others. And you say, oh, that seems, non that seems non-inclusive. That seems like God's being prejudiced. God would grant that any one of them could join the assembly of worship if they would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see... We are a covenant community. We are a people that are set apart. We are supposed to be different. We do follow the way to God. And that way to God is only through Jesus Christ. I read in Christianity Today this past week. I went with Catherine to go get some work done at the library. And while she was doing some of her reports, I was reading Christianity Today. And it said in there of all the Presbyterian leadership that they polled nationwide, 43% of their pastors, 43% of their pastors believe that there's another way to heaven besides Jesus. That's pastors now. That's pastors. 43% of their pastors say there's another way to heaven besides Jesus. You see, if you don't guard the trust in your family, don't you, don't you think that the enemy's not constantly looking for a place to land? Don't you think that the enemy's not constantly looking for a, a crack in the wall? Just a little place of compromise. Just somewhere where I can wield my way in. We're in the world, but dear friends, we're not to be of it. But look at this in verse 4. It says, During all of this... I'm sorry, verse 6. But during all of this, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. I had returned to the king. You remember? He said he returned. He went back to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and he came back to Jerusalem. And this is what he discovered. He discovered an alliance with Tobiah, who represents the devil. He discovered that, uh, that, the, the, uh, that Tobiah was living in the temple and in places that were reserved to keep the goods, to feed and take care of the Levites. And look what his response was. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back, wait a minute, verse 8, 
and it, nine, eight, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room, and I commanded them to cleanse the room. Have you ever seen somebody who has everything on the curb because they got kicked out of their house? You imagine Tobiah coming back to the house of God, just whistling, because boy, he just, you know, he probably went to the market and he's got all his stuff ready. He's going to go sit at the house and sit there and prop up his feet on his uh, sofa and watch television for a little while. And he looks out there and he sees that every bit of his goods are sitting out on the curb. And Nehemiah's standing there. And he said, uh-oh, Nehemiah's back in town. He said, not only are we going to clean all this stuff out, we're going to cleanse this. We're going to come in here and cleanse this thing and recommit it and redevote it to God. There are some things to get angry over. And the enemy has no place in the rights of the children of the living God. And sin needs to be dealt with abruptly and it needs to be killed when it's seen in our lives. It needs to be driven out. We don't commune with the devil. We don't even talk to the devil. We talk to the Lord. But he took rash steps. But they seem rash because he was around a bunch of people who had so compromised. And look, look at verse 10. He had also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites of the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. You know what that means? The Levites were living in the temple in the house of God and they were being fed and taken care of. And the high priest kicked out um, <clears throat> them and let the devil live there. And they went back to their fields and went back to doing... They had to work for <clears throat> in the fields to work for their substance when it should have been provided for in the house of God. It broke Nehemiah's heart. He said in verse 11, I, commanded the, I, I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. And then all Judah brought tithe of the grain and the new wine. And man, we set things back up again. And people began to give again. And the treasury was set back up again. And he took faithful men that he put charge over it because he considered them faithful. And their task was to distribute to the brethren as we see in the end of verse 13. Then he finds out after that that in those days in verse 15 they started bearing burdens on the Sabbath. Now they were prostituting their worship. Now they were doing work on the Sabbath when they were strictly commanded not to. This is a New Testament picture of the fact that once you come to Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you enter into God's rest and you have standing with God not on the basis or the merits of what you do, but your standing with God is based on the merits of what Christ did. And this is an Old Testament picture of that. In other words, they were marring the picture of salvation by grace through faith. They were entering works into it. And say, oh, it's okay to work on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was given and institutionalized in the Old Testament writ in order to show them that God was going to do the work, not themselves. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they began to compromise their worship. And Nehemiah said, stop it, stop it, stop it. So what he did was, is he commanded that the gates be shut on the Sabbath. And look at this. Then in verse 19, he said, I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. And he told the merchants, now the merchants and the settlers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They only did it once or twice because in verse 21 he warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Wow. You do that again, don't even get near this wall on the Sabbath. Don't even come anywhere close to this wall on the Sabbath. Because this is God's covenant people. 
And the reason that's not brash, the reason that's not ugly, the reason that was the right thing to do is because the fact that they were doing that is what led to the destruction of Israel in the first place. We've got to stop this. He said God imposed judgment on us because of these very things. He reestablished temple worship. He reestablished the Sabbath worship. It was a way of pointing them to Christ. Sanctified, set apart. Salvation is from our God, but it is by grace through faith. It is not of works. Lay your burdens down. And then he saw in verse 23 that the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or two of the other people. You know, listen to this. Here's the deal. They started intermarrying with unbelievers. And when they started intermarrying with unbelievers, the language of the world became the language of the children rather than biblical truth. Boy, are we not there? I'm telling you right now, we, the principles of the world, every one of them have this in common. They're all a lie. Every last one of them. And the only way to counter lies is with the truth. And in the average home today, I'll guarantee you that majority of the time the children know more about the Atlanta Braves or the Detroit Pistons or uh, know more about uh, Miley Cyrus or a bunch of other pop culture mentality than they do anything about God's Word. Is that because God's Word's boring? Is that because it's archaic? Is that because it's, it's, it's done? It's not alive? It's not vibrant? The only people that believe that about God's Word are the ones that don't take any, any time to immerse themselves in it. If you immerse yourself in God's Word, you'll find joy and peace and direction and light. You'll find comfort. You'll find encouragement. You'll find strength for the race. You'll find all of those things. And above it all, friend, you'll find truth. And so no longer, we couldn't speak the language of church anymore. We can't speak the language of faith because they had intermarried and they were more familiar with the language of the world than they were the language of faith. And that's what God knew would happen. And this is what's happening with us right now in our culture. This is why we're bending over backwards to do things like study in the book of Romans to find out what the major doctrines of the Christian faith are. This is why we preach exponentially. Uh, expositorily in, through the Word of God, verse by verse by verse, because it's what God's Word says that matters and nothing else. He said, you want your heritage to be cut off? You want to get in the same place that you got into that started the judgment in the first place? Start compromising. And when you do that, faith will not be passed down from one generation to the next. It won't. It won't. You forget your foundation. You know the way to losing it all. You know the way to losing it all. Because the foundation is upon which the house is built. It is best communicated, it is best preserved, and it is best passed on in the setting of the family to have generational impact. I'll show you the truth behind that. Look at Malachi. We're going to look at the prophetic. Malachi was the prophet that wrote to this time. When you look at this and you see what was going on, turn to Malachi if you will. 
Now let's turn to chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. Malachi was the prophet that wrote to this hour. He was the prophet du jour. He was the one who was speaking to where they were at this point, right now, in history. So we're looking at the history played out in Nehemiah chapter 13, and we're looking to the prophetic voice of God calling for repentance in Malachi. And look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? This is God's response. In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse because you have have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nation will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What did you do? You robbed the grain offerings and the fruit offerings and the oil and took them out of the house and let the devil move in. And when you did that, you robbed me because the substance that was in that house was reserved to take care of the priests and the priesthood and their service to you, the gatekeepers and the singers, to worship and offer up praise and thanksgiving to me, to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. Do you know one of the reasons why elderly people are so impoverished in the United States? You know where that started. You know, you know what the one sure way nowadays in the United States to ensure poverty is live long enough. Just live long enough. And the struggles that come with being on a fixed income, you know some of that, you know where some of that comes from? You know where that originates from? It originates from the fact that the failure of the church and the people who profess to know Christ to take care of their own families, and when they don't have a family to take care of, it's the church's responsibility. Did you know that? In 1 Timothy it says, if you have a widow among you who does not have children or grandchildren, that widow over 60 years old is the church's responsibility. Did you know that? New Testament, that wasn't Deuteronomy, that wasn't Leviticus, that was 1 Timothy. You don't have the wherewithal to do it. Why? Because you're robbing me. The God says, you're robbing me. And God, Does that mean that God's in want? And he needs some help in order to fund heaven? Does God have a budgetary crisis? Of course not. He said, you're robbing me of taking this money that I set aside that belongs to me and using it to bless others. And you're robbing me of the ability to to bless you. Look at it. There's only one time in the Word of God that I know of that God says, test him, and it's right here. Bring him all the tithes into the storehouse. There'll be food. And see if I will not test me in this and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and bless you. Start with the tithes, friend. Tithe means 10%. That's all it means. Tithe, tenth, tithe, tenth. Start there. Begin to give of the gross of your income, 100%, not, not after the government gets hold of it, but... Gross income, begin to give one-tenth, start there, be happy about it, and i tell you one thing, you will not stop there if you really get it. 
And you know what? And then there'll be substance, there'll be care, there'll be enough in God's house. He's already got it taken care of. He's already got the plan. He's already got it set in place. It's just a matter of God's people being obedient. Now, this is what was going on. Now let's look at Malachi chapter 2, verses 11 through 5. The reason that the Ammonites and the Moabites, who had tried to curse God, Patty, and hired a, hired, a, hired a prophet to do it. Let me hire a prophet and I'll pay somebody, a hired gun, Balaam, and you can go over and curse these people and hopefully they'll be wiped out. I wouldn't call that a friend. And so he said, okay, we hired this, we got a hired gun, a prophet gun. He said, these people are not to be among you. They're not to be among you, you're not to be mixed in with them. And the reason they were there is because they were marrying the Israelite daughters. Strictly prohibited by God. And we've talked about this before. If you're a believer and you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and you're in here this morning and you're single and you hope to be married one day, the Bible strictly prohibits you from marrying an unbeliever. At any level, we are to love unbelievers, but we are not to marry them. If you're a Christian, love them, absolutely, but don't marry one. And if you go into it, the reason is, is because your view of the world and your service and devotion to Jesus will always intersect where they're headed. It is the seedbed for conflict. You will have it ongoing and you will have to compromise your convictions in order to get along. Do not do it. Don't even consider doing it. But he said, okay, the reason they were there is because they started doing it. Now listen to this. This was God's intention. Listen to God's intention. Are you look at, look at, look at uh, Malachi 2, 11 through 15. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off, cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He's saying, don't bring your offering when you're walking in complete disobedience to me. Don't think I'm going to accept it. And this is the second thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it from goodwill from your hands. And you say, well, why? Why Why do you not receive the offering? And the Lord says, because I'm witness between you and the wife of your youth, which you have, with whom you have dealt treacherously. And the Lord said, you have not nurtured, cared for, and discipled, and shepherded your wife. And I gave her to you for the express purpose of loving her the way Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. I've told before in marital counseling sessions, and I've looked straight at a guy before, I've done it before, and I've had more trouble and more controversy in ministry. I've had more people get mad at me in ministry over premarital counseling than anything else I can think of. And... <clears throat> I'll always look at the fellow and say, let me tell you something right now. If God is going to give this treasure, this, this precious treasure, this sweet young lady to you, and he's going to, he said, I'm, I'm going to, and I'm putting her spiritual watch care in your lap, 
And you're going to be apathetic about your relationship with Jesus. And you're going to be coy about your relationship with Jesus. And you're not going to pursue Him with red heart fervor. And you're just going to be a guy who just gets along and goes through the motions. For goodness sake, let's stop it now. Let's quit this session. Let's go to the Waffle House. Let's get us a waffle, some bacon, and some coffee and call the whole thing off because she's putting her spiritual future in your lap. And if you're going to be lackadaisical about that, stop it now. Don't involve her in your apostasy. That's how to win friends and influence people. You think that, But see, that's the, what the Lord, the Lord takes that seriously. He said, you've dealt treacherously. You, you have not tended to. You've not been compassionate. You've not tended to my daughters that I have given you. You're dealing with them treacherously, abusively, neglecting them. She's your companion, the wife by covenant. And look at his objective. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? This is the $64,000 question. Why did he make them one? What was his purpose? Why was the heart of God so grieved? Why was the heart of God contorted? Why was their judgment imposed upon this city? The most important city in the world is Jerusalem. Washington, D.C. is not the most important city in the world. By far, head and shoulders above them all, is not Beijing. It's Jerusalem. It's the most important city in the world. History rises and falls and turns based on what happens on that part of land. And there's my covenant people. You were supposed to be set apart. You were supposed to be generationally concerned with your seed. Why did I make you one? Because He seeks godly offspring. That's why. He said, if you're going to continue in my covenant relation, if you're going to have an impact, if the salt is not going to lose its savor, if you're going to be the light of the world, you're going to have to come together as one. I've put you together as one and I've got a grand plan. And that is that you come together as one and you invest in your relationship with Christ and start first with your family because I intend to birth through you godly spring, offspring. And as I do, I want this godly offspring to have an impact around the pagans all around. Man, Dad, do you understand the awesome responsibility you and I have, but yet at the same time the awesome privilege to have godly offspring? That was the heart and mind and priority of God. He told them that. He said, because you've been dealing this way, first of all, how can you have a godly offspring when you're marrying a Moabite woman? How could you marry, how could you have godly offspring when you're marrying a Moabite man? How could you have godly offspring when you marry an unbeliever? All you're going to do is confuse your children. Who is God? You know what I'm going to tell you something right now? I'm just going to tell you this right now. Mark it down. One of the greatest witnesses to the gospel on this planet is husbands who love their wives, wives who love their children, wives who love their husbands, and parents who love their children. That's one of the greatest witnesses of the gospel. I'm going to tell you something right now. One of the richest men who ever lived in his autobiography wrote this. J. Paul Getty. He was a billionaire back when a billion dollars was a lot of money. Because we throw that around. The government takes, what, five minutes to spend that? Billionaire. He had five, I think it was, five children. A son that committed suicide. Another son that was estranged from him. He never had a relationship with him. Another son who died under mysterious circumstances. Another son who died 
early in his life because of physical illness, and he was seldom around because he was off on business. He amassed a fortune. He wrote in there, he said, of all the enterprises that I've conquered, business, commerce, management, you name it, of all the things, he said, there's, one, there's been one art that I've failed to master, and that is the art of marriage. Five marriages, five failures. Failure. Just can't seem to get that right. And why not? Because he worshipped the God of Moab. He worshipped the God of the age. Doesn't mean that Christians don't have difficult marriages. And then he goes on to say in here, this is where, this is where God says it. And we'll just go ahead and say it right now. We're trying to lay a foundation here. Trying to lay a biblical foundation and a, a godly foundation, but look what he says. But did not this is uh, Malachi two fifteen? But did I did I, I did not make a one having a remnant of the spirit? Why not, why one? Because I seek godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Let me tell you something right now. God doesn't hate divorced people. God hates divorce. And there are some of you in here who have been divorced. But He loves you and He's restored you. There are restored divorced people. In this, and God has wiped that under the blood and it has been forgiven. Praise God. Amen. What God says, I that's done. Don't even bring it up to me anymore because I done forgot it. Because I took it out on my son. Amen. But heretofore, as we move on, one of the greatest responsibilities we have as a church is to nurture and tend to and care for families. That's whether that's a single mom, or whether that's a single dad, or whether that's a widow woman, or a widower, or whoever it might be, or whether or not it's a mother and father who struggle with issues from the past, or whatever, it runs the gamut. But God said, I tried to make you one, and I want you to make you one, to be a light to a dark world. See, the Moabites and the Amabites, collectively we're not supposed to come in there, but individually if they repent, they can come in. You can't have the kind of marriage, you can't have the kind of home that honors God unless He's the center of it. And He has a plan. God has a plan. God has a plan. Let's trust Him for it. Let's trust Him that God would build through the work and ministry of His church a godly offspring. Because you know what? They're going to need to have a faith that's firmly rooted. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. Your children and my children are going to be challenged on their faith like we were not challenged. As a matter of fact, some of them, because of their profession of faith as Christians in the world that we're entering in right now, it might cost them their life. I'm telling you. You see where we're going. They need to know to whom they have believed and why they believe. And they need to have a faith that's firmly rooted with people surrounding them that are firmly rooted. Guard the trust. Guard the trust. It's precious to God. It's precious to God because He so loves you. And He loves your children more than you'll ever know. He loves the children of this church. He's got a plan. It's a good one.